old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned and to us unseen. Sort of like how we can't possibly see what inspired some people to adapt the work of H.P. Lovecraft. Allow the cast of Cthulhu to be your guide through the world of cinematic H.P. Lovecraft adaptations from the superb to the truly cosmically horrific. I'm Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. And today we'll be reviewing the 1970 adaptation of the Dunwich Horror, written by Curtis Hansen, Henry Rosenbaum, and Ronald Silkowski, and directed by Daniel Haller. Haller? Haller? I don't know. There's two L's. I I, I, I say Haller. Haller. I mean, I think it's whatever. Yeah, but most importantly is you may recognize the name Curtis Hansen. Yes, the same Curtis Hansen from L.A. Confidential. Yeah, I mean, he, he had a... A crazy career before he became a um, Oscar nominated, like you know, really it director. Mm-hmm. It's just funny if you look back, he did a lot of weird shit, and he's from the Corman school of you know, filmmaking. Yeah, and it, which which is this is part of you know. Yeah, this was the first uh, credited screenplay that he has, and of course it's you know that's not a shameful thing. I believe Coppola started in the, the Corman uh, School of Filmmaking. Yep. Um, Scorsese. Scorsese, Scorsese yeah. I, I mean, a, a bunch of uh, popular... Ron direct- Howard. Ron Howard also. I didn't, I, mean, know, I didn't know Ron Howard did. Yeah, Ron Howard. A funny story with Ron Howard. He wanted to direct so bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, we're going on a tangent even before we get into the Dunwich Horror. But <laughs> he wanted to direct so bad that he asked Roger Corman. Because he, he was doing, I believe, um, the movie... I'm trying to think which one he directed. I'll prob- I'm probably going to get this wrong, but he was doing, I believe, Eat My Dust, which was like, you know, one of those car- crazy car movies of like late 60s, early 70s. And yeah. he-, he said, look, I want to direct. He said, OK, we'll do this film, star in it for basically no money. You know, <laughs> like he was a and you can direct a feature right away after that. Another car film, Grand Theft Auto. Oh, yeah. Which he also starred in. He said you could star in it and direct, so you can have both sides. And again, like like Ron Howard has said, as Roger Corman basically said, and I'm basically not going to pay you anything because I'm giving you the the chance of a lifetime to direct. And I mean, for Ron Howard, it went on to become a very big career. Yeah, and I mean, it, like I said, it's it's no shame because there are yeah. popular, successful filmmakers that have come out of that. Jack Nicholson also kind of started as an actor in a lot of low budget Roger yep. Corman productions. It's Peter sort of, Fonda, you yeah, know. Yep. It, it, it was, all these guys. It was the, uh, you know, I guess the, the if there was a contemporary equivalent, it'd be the Lloyd Kaufman uh, school of filmmaking. Yeah, Lloyd Kaufman. Um, yeah, actually, probably Lloyd Kaufman's the closest thing to the Roger Corman mold of giving chances to people for no money. Yeah. You know, like, very cheap. Like, and hell, James Gunn came from the Lloyd Kaufman school of filmmaking. He basically did, he wrote Tromeo and Juliet yeah. for, like, what I think he said for, like, 300 bucks the script mm-hmm. he had to write it in like a week and he wrote it they filmed it they shot it whatever and you know from there and trey parker and matt stone yep. got cannibal the musical picked up by lloyd kaufman <laughs> which is funny to me that lloyd kaufman's the only one that saw this film and said oh this is great i'd love to put it out <laughs> while other distributors were like this is the worst film we've ever seen and i'm like have you really seen the worst film you ever seen with Cannibal? Cannibal Musical is very like of charming, like low budget musical. Mm. How the hell is that the worst film you've ever seen? You've never seen somebody's Lovecraft adaptations, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Ugh. but but yeah. So so this is coming from the Corman school, you know. Yeah, and we spend time to talk about that because 
you know, the Corman school was basically how to shoot fast and cheap, which is going to play a factor into this 1970s adaptation of the Dunwich Horror. But before we get into the, well, I, I can't even say before because we've already been sidetracked, but before we talk about the film, um, I'm going to do what I typically do and give a bit of background on the story itself. Um, the Dunwich Horror, written in 1928 and published in Weird Tales in April two, uh, 2019, 1929, two different things. Um, at the time, Lovecraft <laughs> was paid $240 for his work, which was at the time the largest sum he'd ever been paid, which is the equivalent of about $3,600 today, so a, a pretty big paycheck. Um, the, the central premise of a god or monster impregnating a woman is similar to Arthur Mackin's uh, the Great God Pan, which is actually referenced in the story and is a, a, a short that I have read. It's, you know, if you never, or if you've read plenty of Lovecraft, you'll read through Great God Pan and be like, oh, I see I see him in this story, or you see the story in what he has done. Um, the story has been criticized for its obvious good versus evil scenario, leading author Donald R. Burleson to suggest that the story should be read as a parody, even though there is actually no evidence from Lovecraft to support that. In fact, he even wrote in a letter to his friend August Derleth, I found myself psychologically identifying with one of the characters, an aged scholar who finally combats the menace toward the end. Um, in terms of its uh, its reception, uh, a writer, Robert M. Price, a New Testament scholar who has written exclusively on the Cthulhu mythos, says, quote, Among the tales of H.P. Lovecraft, the Dunwich Horror remains my favorite. Uh, but S.T. Josie, however, describes it as, quote, simply an aesthetic mistake on Lovecraft's part and refers mm. to this film adaptation as, quote, a rather crude adaptation, um, which I don't think I would necessarily disagree with, but also don't necessarily think it's a terrible thing. But I guess before we talk about the film, right. James, what what do you think of, of the Dunwich Horror, the story just itself? <clears throat> I, I like the story itself. Like, it's one of the ones I first read when getting to Lovecraft and you know the whole it's true though it it does even though it ties in all I guess you could say the tropes of mm. of what a Lovecraft story is you know the old gods you know ten, you know some sort of monster that's like you know right at the cusp of coming through to our dimension um you have like a scholar trying to fight evil you have weird followers of this god that's trying you know mm -hmm. you have all these different and then you have like all the miskatonic you know arkham you have dunwich which becomes a play you know all these different locations as well and but it is weird like even like watching both these adaptations you know which the next episode we'll talk about the later one but um <laughs> but it is weird that it does feel very good versus evil which is really never in Lovecraft's story like good and evil. There's you're kind of just on this same wavelength. There are people that are evil or just bad that want to, but even like then, the old gods are almost referred to as being like an evil force that wants to come destroy the you know the world or whatever, like Yogg-Sothoth and all these other little references. The Necronomicon yep. is referenced, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and it's it's interesting that it is like very good versus evil it's very like okay these are the good people that are fighting and these are the bad the waitleys and all this other stuff are bad like you know wilbur waitley is trying to find the necronomicon so he's trying to find that last page that is it is it to be found you know yeah. like mm -hmm. and like it's kind of interesting you know where the story kind of does that but like you look at any other one it's it's it, i see what joshie's talking about it's it it's the aesthetic is not a love but but at the same time 
I know Lovecraft, you know, like you said, got paid the most he ever got paid for this story. <laughs> and it is like a very linear, more of a linear It did. It, it does. Story. It seems that that you know? archetypical kind of structure does lend itself better, quote unquote, to adaptation. Um, I, I, uh, I always get this one mixed right. up with the thing on the doorstep. Um, but it, they, you know, they're, we, which we've also covered on this podcast already, but, um, uh, the, right. my only, I don't even want to say problem with it, yeah. but one thing that I, that I don't love about it is it's, it's not uncommon for him to kind of have mm-hmm. the omniscient third, uh, third party, like observer, basically like there, there's a narrator that is not named. I mean, it's just kind of, you're recalling the story of this thing that happened and, um, some, yeah. some archetypes of his stories, which can be mm-hmm. troublesome to some people are where things happen, uh, I was about to say off camera, which is not <laughs> a thing for, for a short story, but basically it's kind yeah. of the, you know, the, the climactic battle in this all kind of happens where people are watching it from afar through binoculars, watching it from afar through binoculars a, against an invisible creature, basically. Right. Yeah. It's kind of a weird, like you can't film that because that'd be really boring. But, but it, it's, it's just this idea of he, he has these, these little, um, not ticks, but he, he has these little um, um, signatures of his writing, which he kind of, you know, will, will tiptoe around doing or writing about certain things. It kind of lets your imagination fill it in, which I do think is kind of cool, but does lend kind of an inherent problem to a filmmaker who is trying to adapt, adapt that. Like, well, how do we, how do we approach a, a climactic battle with an invisible creature? And both of these uh, adaptations do approach it in different ways. One of which I let's say I appreciate more than like, and the other one I just yes. straight up don't care for. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, you're, I can't wait to hear which one is which. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're. I mean, you're, like I said, we're we're dealing with uh, a film executive produced by Roger Corman, um, American yes. International Pictures. So you you automatically know that whoever's working with this is not behind the eight ball, but they're we're looking at a limited uh, a limited budget, and they're going to have to tackle these challenges and you you know i mean you've you're more of a of a b movie and trashy uh, yes. uh film guy than i so like i mean could you not just talk to the audience but even to me like how does this kind of fulfill sort of the stereotype not stereotype but sort of the archetypes of like a roger corman production well i mean that's it's kind of funny because it, it came after his very to me at least his very prolific um poe adaptations you know like mm. You had you had him doing these poet adaptations with the likes of Vincent Price. Yep. He's very like, you know, to me, like in retrospect, I understand maybe back then they were kind of trashed for what they were, you know, oh, garbage films you play at the um, the drive in, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of thing. But they're very um, to me, they just look sharp, like the Technicolor is very nice. And like he he really stretched stretched a penny to a buck like Hmm. every little bit he would like you know he'd he'd find like either a castle or so that that's something even later on with him and other um producers would do like like charles band with Stuart, you know with Stuart gordon's films like something like castle freak where Mm -hmm. you have well how are we going to film this well i i own a castle in you know you know (laughs) in romania let's film Let's film it there. And let's also film 80 other films at the same time. <laughs> so we could do it. And then that's what Roger Corman would do. He would reuse, reuse sets, reuse costumes, reuse this. So, And that's what I kind of like appreciate about it. Like it, it almost feels like it's in that same world mm-hmm. as the Poe adaptations because of like 
the similarities, you know, between Poe and Lovecraft, of course, but also just the aesthetic of like, you know, getting like, you know, a few young, hot, either up, upcoming or child actors that have become older. Like in this one, you have Dean Stockwell as, you know, Waitley and you have Sandra D as like the female, like the damsel in distress, the one that's going to be possibly impregnated again, you know, like by Yogg-Sothoth or whoever, you know, whatever evil force and um you know and 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 basically you know you get very workman like directors like it is Haller or Haller I think it might be Haller but yeah. he's a very workman like director who did like ton of a ton of stuff before like you know especially Corman's like biker films and whatnot and then later on did a lot of TV so very workman like mm-hmm. you know nothing flashy Yep. You know, yep. but this one has like some cool psychedelic stuff, which was the norm for a lot of Corman's films in the late sixties, early seventies. Like, right? Yeah, yeah. Everything from the trip, you know, with Peter Fonda, and like even like sometimes his films that he would just mash together, like The Terror, which is a film that is three films in one, and he just kind of <laughs> tied it all together. And then I think you know, asked Francis Ford Coppola before he was a big director. Hey, can you film me another twenty minutes for this film or whatever? And it's like, and that's kind of how Corman worked. Like, very let's, and and it's famous, you know. And again, this is another one of those films. He's famous for never losing a dime, except for once in his life. Oh, which was the one film that he loves the most that he made, which was the Shatner film. Um, I think it was called The Intruder. I think or okay, but it's basically a film that's very of its time of like a racist who goes down south but then learns about how racism's wrong but like he was filming it where the kkk was prevalent and Mm -hmm. like were threatening to like bomb the the the, you know it was a crazy shit and it's the only film of his that lost money Mm. but it's the one he's most proud of Mm. which is so funny that all these other films, eh, whatever, you know, even now today, Sharktopus, who to give, who cares? Let me make <laughs> editing, you know, it doesn't matter, but you'll do it. Okay, let me get a few semi-names and and a lot of times let me get some, like, you know, like bosom-heavy women, like, just to kind of, and, like, actually one of the funny things was he wanted Sandra D to be nude in this film. Yeah. And she said, look, I want to branch off from Gidget, but I ain't doing that. Yeah. I'll, I'll do like damsel. I'll do some re- re- a little more racy stuff, but mm-hmm. I'm not going nude for you, Corbin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and I remember uh, a few years ago when he was getting his uh, his honorary Oscar. There was a lot of controversy because people were, you know, the 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 oh. snooty like a uh, you know uh, pretentious guard were sort of like, well, here's a guy who his entire career is all low budget B movie schlock stuff, and then others were like, yeah, but because of the way that he trained filmmakers to work fast to think on their feet to like use their budget to their to you know to to their to their advantage like you said to turn a a a, a dollar a cent into a dollar um you got Francis Ford Coppola you got Martin Scorsese you got Jack Nicholson you got a lot of these influential filmmakers and actors and producers and um and and so there there was that I remember that that combativeness and kind of there was basically two camps and there was kind of no in between um, but like you said, there, there's this, he has this, he has this tendency to sort of like, listen, 
we got this great location. We're going to shoot the shit out of this location because we're never like, <laughs> this is all we have. And, and that's kind of shown in the, the Waitley mansion in this movie where it's like, there's so many scenes that take place in it. Um, oh, yeah. he, he invents excuses to kind of have the Sandra D character stay the night or stay the weekend. And we're going to shoot here and we're going to, you know, and, and it is a, Kind of, I don't want to say glamorous, but it's a it's an impressive kind of um, setup, and it, and it does kind of yeah. feel like that. Uh, like you said, some of his Poe adaptations, which are kind of so rich in color and just kind of have this evocative kind of mood and tone to them immediately. Where as soon as we walk in, just like oh, this does not bode well for our protagonist, basically. No, not at all. And like, and I love like you know you get someone like a Dean Stockwell who is from Hollywood as you know a child actor and like. You know, you look at him here, it's 1970, like, he's got, like, the nice little, uh, what I, I, I'm trying to think of what the hairstyle he has in this. It's, like, it, very, um... It, like, it looks like a wig, but I'm sure it's not. I'm sure that's his It's not, hair. I, yeah. I think it is. Like, I think it's, like, just that perm look. Maybe that's <laughs> yeah, what that's, it is, like, a perm, weird, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Because, mm-hmm. and the whole time, I'm just kind of, like, because I'm re-watching this for the first time, probably since I got the DVD back in, like, those... When MGM would do those terror, terror, whatever, double feature ones, oh, so yeah, yeah. they would have like that and like Murders in the Rue Morgue. And like then they would yeah. do like two other like and they had so many of these ones, like all these MGM double features, mostly Corman produced. And 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 personally, that's another reason why Corman should be like have an honorary Oscar alone. He made so many executives money, too. Yeah. Like MGM was still pumping out and doing well because of Corman. Like, because mm-hmm. he's like, oh, here's a million dollars, make us a film, and then Corman would make five films for a million dollars. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Even better. Like, mm-hmm. like, okay, so good. It's kind of like the producer version of, like, Robert Rodriguez, where you would yeah. give Robert Rodriguez $8 million and he'd do the film in four. And it would blow executives' minds. Like, wait, we gave you $8 million. He's like, yeah, but I did it with four. Okay. <laughs> How'd you get pissed at that? Like, okay, well, we'll definitely make the budget back now. And it's, and I kind of like wish, you know, the problem is now with a lot of these low budget, especially Lovecraft stuff, and we'll talk about that later, it, it tends to go to the same, like, you know, scheme of things of, you know, what's in a Lovecraft story? Well, let's throw in tentacles. Let's throw in yeah, just weird imagery and, like, weird symbols and just to say, you know, it's it's kind of like become commonplace. But, you know, back 1970, like, I this is the first. I don't know if primarily if this is the first feature film adaptation of a Lovecraft story per se, but it's like one of the bigger um, tentpole ones. You know, one that actually got a, like a little more press than some other ones. You know, especially short films and what. Because I know on like stuff like Night Gallery, they you know, did a few episodes based on his stories and stuff's always been cribbed from his stuff. So, you know, if we trace it back, we'll probably find more close to what, like, like a Lovecraftian, you know, adaptation, but he wasn't as trying to think of a word. Wasn't as, um, cool. Mm -hmm. I guess you could say as like Poe. Right. Poe was cool to like adapt from back in the day. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and 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 Poe seemed to be embraced so. sort of earlier on, and or, or not even in his career, but after his death, sort of the the academic and literary community kind of embraced him as an important author a lot sooner than 
they embraced H.P. Lovecraft. And, in, and, and I think in part that's just because of the development of pop culture. Once people started, you know, I mean, Richard Stanley is a guy who, you know, when he was a kid, was, he found the, the Lovecraft stories that, like, his, his grandmother or grandfather had, and that, like, kind of influenced him growing up. But, but this is, yeah, because I'm, I'm looking at our, at the kind of stuff that's out there. Um, yeah, I mean, The Haunted Palace, which was a, a Corman production in 1963, uh, right. that one came out, um, Die Monster Die right. in 1965. Uh, but yeah, this is one of the first ones that that had like a uh, a, yeah. a, a wide a wider release, I'd say, and it didn't seem like it was very well received when it came out. It's still not very well received now. But I I think, and we've talked a little bit about this. But when I immediately after watching, I was kind of like, eh, whatever. But the more I I sat and thought about it, the more I kind of appreciated it for what it was, and especially under those confines of like, listen, they were probably working with yeah n- no budget on this one, and also, um having to compromise a little bit because you do have Dean Stockwell as, you know, the role of Wilbur Waitley, but Peter Fonda was originally cast in it, but had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. So they had to get yes. Dean Stockwell in there with his now. Okay. Real quick. Do you think that mustache is real? It's a very good question. Um, <laughs> with, no, and it's funny you said it. Cause like, I'm trying to think of any other, <laughs> any other Dean Stockwell, um, role that he had a mustache in I'm right like, yeah and probably i have there's probably there's probably a listener out there going wait you forgot this yeah. one and i'm mm-hmm. like oh of course but i mean see i did uh, the hair i know i, I it has to be real because even later on when he did blue velvet he has the really weird <laughs> like stretched out pompadour look like 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 yep. faint looking pompadour mm. and he's always had that weird hair but i don't <sighs> i'm gonna say yes i think it's okay, real yeah, i think yeah. it's like bizarre looking you know it's very 1969 1970 mustache well and it's it's quite strange and i don't not strange it's kind of funny to me that just how uh archetypes have changed it but i guess you know it it seems like this film wants to imply that wilbert waitley is kind of uh handsome i guess or seductive because sandra d is very much like falls under his spell whether that's literal or figurative it's you know, we're, we're supposed to believe that this guy is sort of like this charismatic, seductive guy, which is one of Not, the primary changes yeah. from the story. Because in the story, Wilbert Waitley is very much like kind of huge and grotesque. I mean, he's, you know, mm-hmm. they describe him as sort of like when he's four years old, he looks like he's 10 years old or just kind of the, the way. And, you know, he's over by the time of his death in the story, he's like eight feet tall or whatever. And he's this huge, grotesque thing because he's basically part monster. And this one, like, listen, we don't got the budget for that. We got De- <laughs> we got Dean Stockwell um, with a mustache. But, yeah, with, with with a mustache with a perm. Uh, <laughs> and and but I but I appreciate how or, or what Stockwell brings to it because he's very he's soft spoken, but you still kind of get the sense that he's like he he's he's acceptable to the to the outside world, but he still has like kind of a social awkwardness to it where yes. it, like he knows or he he has an idea of how he can seduce and, and talk to Sandra D, but when it comes to Dr. Armitage or the villagers, he's just kind of like like he's oblivious to the fact of like how his words will come across or or like how he comes across to people. And it's a it's a really interesting choice, I think. Yeah, no, it is. Like it's it's funny that like, you know, this is the way they went with the character and like then we'll talk about the other, ver- you know, version that's played by Jeffrey Combs. Is clo- which is funny because it's kind, it's closer in the sense of like how the look that like he is grotesque looking, like supposedly his breath stinks so bad. He's very. They keep they keep saying he's very goat like. Yeah, which is kind of a weird thing thinking if he's like eight feet. Like 
if he's eight feet tall and like stuff, but his twin brother, yeah, I don't. know, That's a whole other thing. Uh, but you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, that's a whole other fucking thing. But <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like that. The the twin that's up, you know, is like even worse looking, mm-hmm. which is kind of bizarre. It's like they're both grotesque and they're only he's more quote unquote human, <laughs> as human as you can be. Yeah. But but I think it's a good it's a good way because that's also the era of like if you have just a hideous freak as a monster you know the monster the the killer um it you right away you're like well okay well of course you'd run away from him but you have to like you know for corman like i got you know producing this i could see well i need a little bit of sex appeal i need like this like sexual tension mm-hmm. between you know stockwell and sandra d even though if it was the actual depiction no way she would she be like hypnotized or drawn to him to give him to ki- to give him the book let alone dr- drive him home because he misses his uh, bus or train. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, la- the last bus, which, uh, like, was that intentional or not? I'm not sure. Also, don't really care. It's just a device no. to kind of get us to a place. Right. And that and that is that leads to, interestingly, like, one of my critiques or, or kind of complaints against uh, against this film. Because, once again, I, I'm we're accepting on it that it's, listen, it's a low-budget B-horror movie. So, like, once we've accepted that, let's judge it for what it's it's doing weirdly or or when it comes to the adaptation the one thing i don't really like because mm-hmm. for the most part it, it, it adheres to the the general plot points of the story you know it, yeah. it's about these two children who are born from like a monster impregnating woman wilbur is trying to get the necronomicon to open or at least the missing page to kind of open the portal and kind of continue this and then there's this monster child kind of breaking free and wreaking havoc but it it I guess one of the the ways that it's hampered by its budget is that if you remove a lot of the verbal mentions of Lovecraft stuff, the Necronomicon, mm-hmm. Yog sothoth all that kind of stuff, it just kind of feels like a kind of a standard 1970s like witch movie, especially when it yeah. comes to her visions of like it, it, it. Haller has admitted that it was inspired by Rosemary's Baby, and it yes. kind of like feels like it very much feels like that. I think almost kind of to a fault. Yeah, it's very like almost like a rosemary's baby light you know it's very mm-hmm. you know has like the grim ending kind of you know like almost a wink like like what's gonna happen next yeah. like you know kind of thing and which i prefer you know i like i like an ending like that but yeah i i i agree like the limitations you know matched with well we're just referencing some lovecraft stuff but primarily it's just we're trying to get this evil book mm-hmm. to finish this evil ceremony to get this evil being, yeah, it, it it could easily, it could have easily been Satan. <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely which, right. Which is this is the era of the satanic, yeah, you know, like race with the devil and the devil's reign and stuff like that. Very much like oh, these evil people trying to you know bring yeah. something forth and some person trying to stop it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that that was very uh, um, in vogue at the time. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, Rosemary's Baby was a huge financial and critical success. Um, but just like, like when when she's having these weird visions of like, you know, a bunch of people and just body paint kind of crawling all over. It just I, I, uh, and this is just entirely a personal preference, I guess. Like, but the stuff about Lovecraft that I love is that sort of the stuff that's out there that exists on the fringe of our sanity or on our on, on what we can comprehend. And just the idea of a bunch of like a, a witch cult is not as scary to me, which I know exists in Lovecraft's text and in the stories. Yes. I mean, you know, there's there's the Cthulhu cults and there's all these sort of, but it's I'm 
I'm more interested and in, in more frightened by that idea of sort of like what what is out there that we can't comprehend, which uh, this film doesn't do as much because it doesn't have the budget to explore that kind of stuff. It has to explore the the relationships between these characters and the creepy kind of stuff is very much uh, reined in by like, well, how many people can we pay? And well, let's just throw some paint on them. That's all we can really do. Yeah. It's just not as interesting to me. Yeah, it's like let's. It was in vogue, like the LSD cinema, you know, yep. like just crazy, you know, like flashing lights and whatnot. And I mean, you know, it, it's fun. It's it's quaint now when we look back. Oh, OK, that <laughs> that's supposed to be scary. <laughs> yeah. OK. But something like the trip, like I mentioned earlier with, you know, um, Peter Fonda, which is basically like having an LSD trip. That's more creepy and like, you know, frightening than this film is like. It's not nothing like it's not frightening and like which is again a problem with a lot of Lovecraft adaptations. They they don't they try to go for like the typical scare, mm-hmm. the movie scare. And like to me when when a filmmaker gets it, it's more about not seeing much or what's beyond. Like like one we'll cover at some point, which is part of the Carpenter, you know, end of the world trilogy or whatever you want to call it the apocalypse trilogy yeah prince of prince of darkness you know if you've seen if you've seen it you notice to me the ending is one of like to me the perfect lovecraftian just scenes ever in a film that's not even a lovecraftian film you know adaptation and i won't say what it is because i you know if you haven't seen a film that's been around for like 35 years watch it now before we cover it but it's hard to replicate that though of this creeping fear just like like how do you depict that but like filmmakers are known to do that mm-hmm. you know like like we've you know in some of the films we've covered there are some flashes of that yeah that were like oh go oh, there it is like that's that's what if like lovecraft was writing today what he was going for like oh you know that's what i wanted you know like kind of thing but they usually just go for either the jump scare of like the typical tentacle beast that comes out. Oh my God. Yeah. Or just something like, you know, it's just something like, like, you know, like you said, the evil cult cultists, but it's, it almost becomes comical because most of the adaptations like, or, you know, if I've seen, they always have like those stupid, like almost look like Cthulhu beanies that go <laughs> over and like with the hanging. Yeah. The tentacles you know, hanging down. Tentacles, yeah, yeah. You know, Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, that I think uh, they could be scary as hell, but it always looks comical to me. Yeah, always like it, it looks like like Zoidberg is coming at you. <laughs> you know, like oh my god, it's a cult of Zoidbergs. <laughs> What's going on? You know, yeah, like, oh. in, in, it's it's <laughs> <laughs> now you can't get that out of your head. <laughs> um, no, and and like you said, I mean, it's kind of a two it's kind of a two pronged problem because once yes. again, when you have the the budget that you have it's like how do right. you depict this nameless horror and i guess i even wrote in the notes here um how does one properly depict an invisible monster uh, apparently by doing a predator pov with psychedelic color flashing um which yes. you know once again he's doing what he's doing with the budget that he's got but it's just kind of like eh, okay I, I i see what you're doing there but it's not kind of um on the one hand i kind of had to commend them because you know, listen, with with Star Wars, how do they cover up the the, the sand speeder? They just fudge Vaseline on the lens. Right. Y- you, you do what you do. But at the same time, I don't even want to 
critique it for not being scary because what is scary kind of varies from of person course. to person. But it's more just kind of like it's a it's not evocative of anything. It's just it seems like it is kind of lazy. Um, and and I think now that we've been talking about it, now that I think about it, it's also. Um, I've said this a lot where it's like, what's the problem with a movie? It doesn't have the existential dread, which I, I realize can kind of be like a one-note critique. But with this one, the yeah. threat kind of seems specific to Sandra D in the sense mm. of, uh, well, what's what's the big problem? Well, the big problem is uh, she's going to get impregnated by the Cthulhu cult, basically. Right. And, and I think that comes down to um, there's not really a protagonist in this film. That's true. Yeah, you're right, because, like, Ed Bagley plays Armitage, right? Yeah, but he's also... But there's large portions of the film he's not right. even in the picture. Exactly. Um, he's... I mean, and Armitage is certainly the good guy in the story. He's the one which kind of helps lead the, the, the attack against the creature. He's the one casting the counter spells and banishing yes. this thing. Um, but we're led to believe, at least, that Sandra D is going to be the one who is... Our introduction to the story, you know, she's the one that, you know, gets us further into this world. And so it's like, hooray, the text or, or the film once again creates a woman where there wasn't one. Yay! Except she she's just kind damsel. of... Yeah, she basically just serves to be fought over by men, uh, has no real agency. We have no idea what she wants. And she's basically yeah. just there to be raped. Yeah. And again, like like we've talked about in other... Ver- you know, they, they throw in like a female character and it's just to be sexually assaulted. Yeah, so it's, she, like... <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like, hooray, oh, oh, shit, okay, no, no, never mind. Close and, and, enough. Yeah, and like you said, with, with Corman's thing, it's like, listen, we need to throw some titillation in there, so let's have an attractive right. blonde woman. Um, it, because it, it's just, a, it's it's that thing of, once again, yeah, Armitage is just, he is who he is. He's the one that figures out who the Waitleys are, their past, what they're trying to do. And Sandra D is just kind of there we spend a lot more time with wilbur whateley including an extended fight sequence in a museum <laughs> yes it's amazing actually. it's very um almost like like it reminded me of like the batman tv series kind of yeah. fights oh like, my god yeah very over over dramatic like they always would do like roles where like flip you know like like stuff like you would never do in a real fight nope but it looks good it yeah. looks good for a, for a cinematic presentation. Yeah, but it, it's it's also just kind of weird to me that this security guard at this museum would willingly just kind of throw this person into glass display cases. Yeah, and right? just like, destroy. Like if he wasn't killed, he would be fired the next day. Basically. Right? No, that's that's the thing. They probably they cut that scene out where like the 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 head of the the museum comes and goes. Well, if he wasn't dead, he'd be fired. <laughs> womp womp. You know, like and or. And, <laughs> terrible yeah, yeah. No. you're right there. you're right yeah and then you, and you could tell it was like listen we gotta we gotta give the people what they want we have a whole bunch of scenes to talk and we gotta do something exciting here because our climax is basically this interrupted satanic ceremony so like let's have a fight sequence like well okay i guess well i and i was gonna say like not not, not to spoil like i mean well it's just funny to me like this film like has a more i guess say dramatic death mm-hmm. for waitley yeah. Because in the in the text, he just gets killed by a guard dog. Yeah, <laughs> that does not like his stench. He doesn't <laughs> like his odor. So the yeah. dog just ferociously rips him apart. Yeah, at well, the age of fifteen, I think was his age. Like, but he did not look fifteen. Yeah, no, I, I like how in the story Lovecraft plants the seeds. Like, hey, hey, guys, dogs don't like him. All right, that's important. Yes, dogs, dogs hate that stench. Yeah. That stench of like you know the old ones you know, <laughs> but but I I think what what's interesting about that is 
once again, you kind of how how we've talked about the the story, the arc kind of exists on the page. Wilbur Waitley dying halfway through—that's a good midpoint of a film. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you think like, oh, so the real threat is not out of the way. The real threat is his brother, who is like. Then you have this monstrous reveal at the end. Uh, but in this one, you know, once again, the the Wilbur Waitley is sort of—it's it, sort of the same thing with re, that we had with Reanimator, where it's like, well, clearly the filmmakers find Wilbur Waitley to be the most fascinating character of all these characters. Yes, definitely. Like, I mean. Even like in the the newer version, which we'll get into, like it's not he's not as he's he's there, mm-hmm. but he's not as central. Like like in this one, Dean Stockwell is like you know acting the hell out of this role. Like and he does you know he does a great job for what he's given. Like it's it's you have to be kind of charismatic, but mm-hmm. also kind of awkward at the same time. Yeah, like the women love you, but you know when when a a man of like I guess a superior you know. Um, just like, just, I don't know, just someone that's a little more like, you know, tense, you know, will, oh, you'll, you'll, you'll kind of shatter almost. Like, you'll be like, kind of like a lapdog, like, oh, wait, let me go away into the shadows, you know, kind of thing. Which is, you know, it's an interesting take on the character. Yeah, and there, but there's, the, you know, the, the, the victory at the end, it, it's hard to have an emotional victory because it's like, well, sure, a, a woman is saved from being a, a victim, except. The reveal she's is pregnant. like, well, no, yeah, she's she's not. The, this this horror is going to continue, which is right. probably the most Lovecraftian thing of this entire story. Yes, it's such a bleak ending. Like, oh, they didn't win. Mm-hmm. She's going to give birth to, unless they abort it. But I, you know, it's one of those things. Can you abort it? You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of crazy. It's like, oh shit, okay. I kind of like that it went that way. You know, the mm-hmm. ill ill conceived child that's waiting to come out. Right, but it, it it does get to a, a truth about this film is that it just seems like they were trying to go for a lot of things which are shocking. Like, let's have this fight and let's have this the yeah. titillation from this woman and let's have like, no, at the end she really is pregnant and it's, uh, yeah. And, and I'm trying to figure out a way that we can kind of clarify that it seems like we're complaining a lot about it and there are problems with it, but also within the confines of what they are working with. They did a halfway decent job, I think. No, they did, and you know what is the the thing I take from this movie too is like I really like the cast, like yeah. the cast of characters. Like you have a lot of actors either later in their career, like you know Ed Bagley, which yep. Ed Bagley Jr.'s father, who mm-hmm. was like prolific. He died soon after this, I believe. Yeah, the, I don't think he right? saw the film released. Right, which is crazy. Like the same year he passed away, and like Sam Jaffe, who's old Waitley. He's like a prolific, you know, he's at everything from Ben-Hur to Gunga Din. And, but then you have like Lloyd Bachner, who I love pointing him out as Dr. Corey. Mm-hmm. That's Hart Bachner's father. Okay. Hart Bachner being the sleazy guy from Die Hard. That's like, <laughs> come on, come on, yeah, you know. Um, and, then, and then you have a young Talia Shire as the nurse. Yeah, her first scene, <laughs> I was like, is that? Oh, no, it yeah. can't be. And yep, yep. It's, it's Adrian, you know, but again, Francis Ford Coppola's sister. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. all tied in. Like, hey, sis, you want to be in this? Uh, I'm not directing it, but you want to be in this movie? Yeah, sure, okay, cool. <laughs> but I kind of love that. Like, and and you know, it that works to me. Like, like no matter how big or low budget a Carmen film was, he always got really good like character actors and like up and comers. Like, <clears throat> and that's kind of to me what works. Like always. Like any any of his films. Even if they're a piece of trash, like you go, oh, okay, well, I'm seeing it because 
of, you know, like this, you know, you, of course, they advertise, you know, Sandra D and her first adult role. People <laughs> think adult role, ooh, she's, you know, yeah. you, get, you get the feeling, ooh, she's going to be naked. No, but this is more adult than Gidget and, like, the surfer-type movies she did before with Universal. <laughs> yeah. It makes sense. You know, she wanted to branch out. She wanted to show, I'm not just a pretty face. Mm-hmm. But sadly, the film is just, you're a pretty face that's, at the central point of like being like, you know, are you going to be raped and like impregnated with this demon child? Yeah, she she wants to prove that she's not a pretty face. And so she takes on a role in which she is really nothing more than just the pretty face. basically. Right. And I don't blame her. Like, it's like, of course, you know, she read the script and like she even said she couldn't put it down. She really loved his script. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it was something different, something she was never given before. And she had that hiatus from Universal mm-hmm. and she jumped at a chance. And I don't blame her. Like, it's a. To me, it's a fun movie to kind of go, let me just go full force like this mm-hmm. crazy ritual movie where, but it didn't really, um, I guess you could say, set the world on fire for her. Like she didn't really get that bump of, okay, now I'm an adult actress. Let me do like she did a few TV movies and shows after, but, you know, Dean Stockwell definitely went on. Oh, yeah. To be a prolific actor, like everything from Quantum Leap to the film we will be be covering in the next episode. (laughs) Um, But that's another story. But yeah, like, you know, but this is like, you know, this is like an enjoyable to me. It's an enjoyable like Sunday afternoon film. Like if it's on TV, you know, if you're changing channels, you can go, oh, what's this? Okay, this looks pretty cool. Let me let me let me watch the rest of it. And you go, okay, that was a fun like hour and a half. Like. You know, nothing more, nothing less. It's, very, it's it's not like memorable either. You know. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's safe to say that it's it's kind of it's cheesy, but I don't think it's bad necessarily. No, no it's definitely not bad. It's it, it has its heart in the right place. Like it's trying as much with the budget and like really the even then the sto- you know story limitations too of like well how do we depict that? Mm-hmm. How do we depict this? How do we? Well, let's figure out a way to do it. Yeah. You know, let's. The closest we can get to it is this way. Okay, well, fine. That's good. You know, there, there's and there's some quote or wisdom out there which is sort of like uh, says something about how creativity can can be spawned by limitations, basically. And and so yeah, it, it is an interesting exercise in in this idea of listen, we we got this story which is pretty uh, a pretty straightforward story, but it's short. Um, so how do we expand this into a feature? What do we do with it? And also, by the way, we have a certain amount of, of confines when it comes to what we can depict and what we can show. And it's, uh, it's in some parts, it's, it's, it's kind of successful at that. And like we said, um, kind of a a fun performance from Dean Stockwell. It's just like, listen, that character doesn't exist in the source material, but like he made it his own or the writers or directors made it their own. And it's a, it's an interesting take that at least kind of shows some, uh, intuition i would say yeah no i i agree with that and like and this is like an aip picture american international pictures and like it's a that that company was famous for making like you know let's get these films out let's come on like everything and corman samuel arkoff who Mm -hmm. was prolific for can i make a buck from this (laughs) you know like it's it's always been said like i think even like samuel arkoff as a little side note, one of my favorite quotes of his, I believe I'll probably get it a little wrong, but when the film, um, cue the winged serpent came out. Oh yeah. Larry, Larry Cohen film and Mm -hmm. Michael Moriarty's in it. Who's fantastic. Like 
for a super low budget film like about a killer Mexican deity that's flying around New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Moriarty is just great in this film, and like when I guess Roger Ebert wrote like a famous thing saying like how Michael Moriarty is like you know fantastic in this film that's full of like this dreck. Yeah, and I think soon after Samuel Aircraft said, "Well, well, the dreck is all mine." They're like, basically saying, "Yeah, I make shit." Okay, if, if there's a gr- if there's a great acting role in it, even better. Mm-hmm. But I'm the dreck. Like that's the reason why. And like, because he was like always producing. I, I think up to the day he died, he just always wanted to keep working in the business. Even like like how Roger Corman is right now. He's mm-hmm. still producing, and he's like 93. Jeez. Like, and he's still going. Him and his wife, and it's like insanity to me, which I I just love. Yeah. No, it, I love it. I certainly understand too the people that, you know, his work is is, is not their cup of tea. His his work is not my cup of tea either. Mm-hmm. And I certainly love and appreciate you know, the A twenty four type of films which come out, which like listen, this is for the sake of the art. We're not really super concerned about the the box office and, right. and that that sort of stuff. But I also have to appreciate and understand like yes, but this is a business too. Right. It's a, it, it's a fine line. It mm-hmm. is like, cause I'm the same way. Like I love a 24s type of aesthetic, but at the same time I can get be- behind something like Bloomhouse, who is making more to make a buck. Yeah. And it makes more, you know, it makes sense to me, but I'm kind of glad there's, but at the same time, like if you ask any producer, if they say, Oh, we're just making movies for the art, they'll say you're full of shit. Like, you know what I mean? Mo- most will say, no, you're not. Like, even with that is that mindset, you're still going to make money in the long run somehow. Like, if it's a good film, mm-hmm. it'll get that press, like, you know, like The Witch did. Like, it'll get that press. Like, any of those films will, if they don't do well in the box office, they'll do well on Blu-ray or streaming. Yeah. Like, and that's A24's thing where, okay, I'm always going to check out one of their films because... Of course. They always seem interesting to me. Like, and I, that's kind of how I grew up watching like Corman's films, you know, produced or even directed once in a while mm-hmm. where it's like, I know even if it's not a good film, I'm going to have a, like at least a little fun. At least I hope he was sort of like before meme culture became a thing. Like he was <laughs> trying to, he was trying to create like viral content and just yeah. like, here's a successful thing. Let's do 10 things like that and see which one catches on. It's so true. And like hit, hit, you know, it's that's what I kind of love. Like, you know, and this is like Dunwich Horror. It's like, you know, the name, you know, if you hear it, you go like, you know, as like you and I were like, oh, yeah, Lovecraft. But other people go, oh, Dunwich Horror, that sounds like really creepy. Like, what is what's Dunwich? Like, where is that you right. know, kind of idea, you know? Well, and, and I have to imagine, too, like, you know, Lovecraft is certainly facing a resurgence now in his popularity. But I, I can't imagine it was it was anywhere close to that in 1970. So the fact that they're like, hey, oh. we want to adapt this story. We want to turn this into something. It's also kind of cool, not necessarily that they were yeah. taking a risk because they didn't put a lot of money into it, but it was also sort of like, hey, here's something which is important to someone to kind of put it out there. I mean, it's almost sort of, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, of a modern day equivalent, and the first thing that comes to my head, which is probably not accurate, is, I mean, because now that Amazon is doing the Wheel of Time series. Oh, uh, yeah. But, you know, and but Wheel of Time was a, a title which was very popular in certain circles that were not necessarily mainstream. Yeah. Um, but now, it, it, you know, it has it has certainly the Amazon money behind it. So it's going to become a bigger thing. You hope at least. Yeah. Or even yeah. like something like, you know, like any like time of like a book series or like some some sort of thing that you would never think would get adapted. 
Yeah. And gets adapted. You go, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Let's see where it goes. Like, to be honest, like, the first time around when they tried to adapt, like, the Golden Compass. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, so excited. You know, I loved the books. And I went to see the movie and I was, like, let down because the movie was just too too big. Like, I don't know. Like, and the world is big in that whole series, the yeah. Philip Pullman series. But so now I'm kind of excited for the series coming out because that looks a little more true to what he what he wanted. Yeah, I, I think that I think we can safely kind of say that that about does it for our thoughts on the 1970 version of Dunwich Horror. A, a movie so. that, yeah, that like I said, I, I appreciate more than I like, but I certainly like more than I dislike, I think. Yeah, I think I like it more than you, but not not much more. It's it's I, I, I say it's an enjoyable watch, but it's not one I'll watch unless someone else wants to watch it. Like and I go, OK, let's let's check it out. An interesting experiment in the sense of like, listen, we got confines that we're working within what can we do with it they do the best they can but also clearly they're trying to kind of catch in uh, or, or catch a lightning in a bottle because of you know the influence from rosemary's baby and just uh yeah witches were a popular genre in the 1970s if you uh, agree or disagree or want to leave us comments at all you can email us at uh mountains of, no i'm sorry movies of madness at gmail.com um, I am on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. James is on Twitter at Fistful of Media. Plus, we have Cast Cthulhu on Twitter, and that's um, as a reminder C T H U L H U. Catch up on our back episodes at castofcthulhu.podbean.com. But that gets to the discussion of what is going to be the next film that we'll be talking about. We obviously prefaced this with uh, uh, Richard Stanley's The Color of Space, and we've been talking about it a lot. The next episode, we'll be reviewing the 2009 TV version. Not just TV version, I think it aired on the Sci-Fi Channel. Which, if you recall from way back in our second episode, um, Beyond Reanimator also aired on the Sci-Fi Channel. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. um, I wonder if this is going to be better. (laughs) We already know the answer. Yeah, um, you're going to have to stay tuned uh, for that to figure out if it is going to be better or not but yeah but as i said that that does it for 1970s uh the dunwich horror next time we'll be talking about the 2009 version of the dunwich horror but in the meantime we'll be waiting and dreaming with dead cthulhu at his house in relia mm-hmm.